The website is called, or rather, the blog is called Harmony from Discord, and it's on WordPress, harmonyfromdiscord.wordpress.com. I think Influence is a very powerful book. Uh, he's written several others, and certainly there's um, a number of other psychologists who've, who've covered the topic. Where I've begun to focus a little more recently is on identifying the proper way that these things should be used, uh, the context for when they work, and more to the point, how someone who really wants to be an unbiased critical thinker can be that. To To give a really concrete example, uh, I in the blog, I, there's something that I coin perspectivism. And perspectivism for me is when your outlook, your assessment, and the way that you see the world is very much colored by your, your perspective and your, your life circumstances. So pretty classically, if you're Western and middle class and English speaking, um, the way that you view other cultures and other languages, perhaps um, you know religions that are quite foreign to you, is going to be colored by that experience, right? So it's going to be much more difficult for you to make an assessment about something that that doesn't conform to your to your worldview. And in most people's case, the the temptation is to either disregard it as as unimportant. Uh, or to dislike it, really, right? Because it's, it's strange, it's weird, it's, it's, it's dirty, whatever it might be. So that, to me, is, is one form of, of perspectivism. And it effectively suggests that at times we take an, an unknowingly arbitrary perspective on something simply due to who we are. And one of the examples of this that I think of is uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement, uh, which I think was a very powerful movement in a lot of ways. But what was ironic about some of the language around it was that most people carried signs saying, we are the 99%. Now, that's true for the U.S., but on a global scale, the, the top 99% percentile income is around $34,000, That's according to one source at least, um, which would mean that most of the people in the Occupy Wall Street movement were actually in the top 1% globally. <laughs> So, you know, to identify yourself as, as 99% when you're actually in the 1%, it's really a matter of, of where you're choosing to, to take that frame and, and who you are. So that, to, to me, is, is perspectivism. Now, the real question is, why does it matter? I mean, every person who's born comes with a set of identity, um, traditions, values, uh, friends, reference, personality, with this huge soup of, of different influences coming from the outside and, and really from ourselves. So it's really nearly impossible to to not uh, not use those when we are trying to do problem solving or trying to form an assessment. But one of the things that I, I do think is possible is that we can be a lot more disciplined in how we go through the world and really in, in avoiding biases and prejudices that, that do color how we see things so that we can be clearer thinkers. So... Uh, in the case of, of, of Cialdini, he has a number of, of things that um, he highlights. So if we take, he's got two that are, are quite interesting because they're sort of the reverse of each other, the foot in the door technique and the door in the face technique. Um, the foot in the door states that if someone makes a smaller request and it's granted, then if they make a larger request, it's more likely to be granted. 
Um, the door in the face is the opposite. It suggests that if someone gets a refusal for a large request early on, they're more likely to get their request granted if they make a smaller request later because the person feels bad. Now, both of these techniques work really well when uh, both the requester and the requestee have something in common. Maybe they're the same uh, background or gender or same school, whatever it really might be. So in the case of somebody trying to persuade you, um, one of the questions that you might want to ask yourself is, if I feel positively about this request, am I being influenced by the fact that they're very similar to, to, to me? Am I being influenced by the fact that you know, they sound or look like somebody I know or that, uh, you know, we've just shared, you know, life experiences or that we went to the same school or, or whatever it might be. Um, or is this offer really good on its own merits? So those are the types of calculations that I think that all of us could really get good at. Now, the other aspect uh, to being better at critical thinking and better at metacognition is I think we really need to be willing to let go of, of bias and our biases. And when I say let go, I think we're unaware of how much we are emotionally attached to certain biases. Um, as humans, we're conditioned to believe that people who are similar to us are better. Um, if you're Americans, you think maybe Americans are better. If you're women, you might think women are better. If you went to XYZ school, you might think, you know, that's, you know, it's much better than any other school, regardless of, of what school it actually is. And those serve a very deep-seated emotional need to validate our own identity. So I think that there really is an emotional attachment to, to some of these biases that make it that much harder to get rid of. However, I think if we are open and willing to, to let those go by the wayside and say, okay, you know, someone has a very different belief system, I personally don't believe it, but I don't think that that makes other things that they say either more or less valid. I think that gets us to a much higher level of clear thinking. Right. Sometimes when someone starts with a faulty premise, they may come to a correct conclusion. It's, yeah. it's, right. it's hard it to can... uh, balance between being open-minded and having your brains fall right out of your head. Well, and, and here's, here's what I would say. Um, that's not, removing biases is not to be done in isolation of other activities. So there are other activities that really a good critical thinker um, could and should be doing. Number one is being as self-educated as possible. I mean, there is a wealth of information on the internet that's available for free every day, and anyone with a, with a good Wi-Fi connection, which is not even me on every day, but uh, anyone with a decent Wi-Fi connection has access to that. I mean, there's no reason to, to not go and get a basic level education on, on subjects that are of interest. So I think that's the first place to start. Um, the second place to start is really just understanding what goes into making a good decision and what goes into making a good assessment and what goes into finding a good solution. Um, and I think when you are very grounded in that, it really doesn't matter what, you know, what people say who are, who are wrong, who are inaccurate, who are motiv politically motivated or, or have some other sort of agenda. It just doesn't affect you to the same degree. And I think that level of, of centeredness and, and intellectual confidence is actually much harder to come by 
because it, quite often it can also masquerade as, as overconfidence, as feeling that you already know a lot of what there is to know, or you're already such a good critical thinker that there's very little that, that someone else can, can, can teach you that's, that's not a specialist in the field. That to me is, is, is often overconfidence. And of course you risk um, getting rich data, rich insights, and 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 good information, and it's information that you'll never even know was good because you don't even realize you're missing it. So to me, that's that's the risk, right? Um, so I think there really is no danger to being less biased because someone who is um, incorrect has less of an influence on you um, if you really can tell right from wrong and good from bad and, and good data, good information from, from poor information. So I really, I don't see that as a risk. You know, I'll tell you, I recently outlined, sorry, did you have a response to that? I, I was just going to say it's a risk for someone who may not be ready to use the tools. That's entirely possible. So I think, again, where I think, for those of us who really do want to be um, very clear thinkers, and and um, I think Cialdini uses the term defense. If you want good defense against some of these tactics and against being influenced in, in ways that you may not want, uh, certainly I think that's the first place to start. It's just understanding like what goes into into basic problem solving and and you know what's good data and what's bad data. Oh sure, uh, yeah. Um, but getting someone to overcome their visceral reaction to a higher price or to a tag that says this used to be $800 but now you mm -hmm. can only get it for $80 yeah. is easier said than done. You might be surprised because when uh, we can talk about some of the specific techniques in that book and some of the ways that we can get around that. So in the case of the price tag, the only reason that that works as well as it does is people either a don't have better information or b they don't trust it so the better educated that you are um the less some of these um pricing adjustments can can influence you so something like um i'm sure he talks about anchoring where let's say in a, in a two-party negotiation one person throws out a price and the second person um, negotiates from that from that starting price as a, as a premise, right? Right. Um, and and what they found is that you know kind of the first number to get out there has an undue influence on on what the final negotiated number is. So that I, that's you know very well documented. I think that happens a lot. Now I think a real defense around this is going into a negotiation fully prepared with how much you're willing to pay. So obviously, if the counterparty throws out a number that's more favorable than you expected, then um, then you're getting sort of a better deal. And if they throw out a number that's less favorable, well, you've already got that number pre-committed. That's number one. And number two, obviously, knowing the true value of something makes you less likely to be influenced by it. So um, and certainly with some with a lot of these um, techniques and tactics that that Cialdini discusses. Uh, it's, it's taking advantage of how, sorry, the people who employ these techniques are often taking advantage of how the human brain works when it's, uh, under pressure or, or, or stressed or, or fatigued, um, or in other ways, um, impaired. 
it's truly amazing how much more perspective you can gain by delaying a decision until you've had a bit more time sleeping on it, as, you're, as it were, um, or just doing more research on what you want to get out of it. So some of these techniques are relatively easy to neutralize in the moment if you're willing to take those steps. Um, but again, you kind of have to be committed to, um, to being able to see things as clearly as possible. I respect your optimism and faith in the educability and mental fortitude of the average person, but I'm not sure if I entirely share it. Right. So see, here's the other thing that, that's, um, you know, that I haven't said and that I, if I remember, Chaldini doesn't really go into. Uh, he talks quite a bit about the techniques and he talks about the, the defense what he doesn't really talk about are the, the times and the reasons and the ways in which we may not want to do that. So um, I'll, I'll give an example from from when I worked at uh, Visa, the, the payments company. Um, they do a lot of stuff related to, to charity. There were a huge number of charity drives and lots of events. We'd have all sorts of raffles and competitions and everything. So they would raise a lot of money. But quite frankly, they, it was, it was quite frequent and they were, I wouldn't use the word aggressive, but quite persistent in it, right? So for any given charity event, um, you'd probably be asked to make some sort of donation six or seven unrelated times, right? So not just if you say no, they keep coming back to you, but if you say yes, even, right? Um, so in a situation like that, the social pressure is such that it's not, many people would see it as not appropriate to say no at every juncture. They just don't, right? So there's a little bit of a calculus that needs to happen there. So you can you can sort of cave to the pressure and be influenced by the people who are asking for money in that situation, or you can potentially be seen by colleagues as some, you know, in a, in a negative light, um, you know, as miserly or selfish or, or whatever it might be. So that's really the kind of the mental math that you you have to do in those situations. And it may not make sense to be defensible to being influenced. Certainly there are times that you do want to be influenced. Perhaps you want your parents to influence you more than other people, or you want certain of your friends to influence you. So I don't think that um, being you know, completely resistant is necessarily the goal. I think being clear and transparent about why you're making the decisions that you are, for those who, you know, who choose to be clear thinkers, I think really that should be the goal. Yes, I suppose that is what is so frightening about ourselves, is we aren't always entirely sure why we do things. Right, right, absolutely. So that's another aspect that I've, I've tackled in the metacognition piece. Um, frankly, as a starting point, and certainly once a person has a, a basic um, knowledge of what some of these persuasion techniques might be, or where some of where they're making cognitive errors, it's really worth to kind of just go and review decisions that they've made previously or other areas to sort of see where they've made mistakes or made errors or where things haven't turned out the way that they like. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, that's a very difficult process because you're effectively reviewing failures, right? <laughs> and you're, you're looking at the time that, you know, something didn't happen the way, the way you expected and, 
you know, someone quoted you one price, but you ended up paying three times that, and, you know, and why was that, et cetera. So uh, that's not an easy thing to do, but if you're, if you're really willing to sort of learn something, it's, it's worth it to, get, to go back and, and kind of do a postmortem and say, what went wrong? Was it overconfidence? Was I trying to impress somebody? Was I feeling um, defensive about what someone had said and I wanted to prove myself by overspending in this other area? Um, you know, was I overconfident? Um, did I just ignore other voices in the room that had something meaningful to say because I wanted to be right? Um, when you kind of, everybody has their own particular weak spots. And I think the more that you're self-aware about them, the better you can be at making some of these decisions and the better that you are at critical thinking. But there's no substitute for practice. So how does someone, I suppose reviewing is one way to strengthen your metacognitive muscles, anticipating events, rehearsing. Although most people might think you're insane if you're doing those things. They might. I mean, I think certainly you can you can start by sort of just uh, rehearsing, you know, alone or reviewing decisions alone. Um, look, you know, I, I'm sure you've seen the statistic about the number of marketing messages that the average person is exposed to every day. I mean, it's on the order of several hundred, really. So, you know, a starting point is really just to look at that and say, okay, what kind of techniques are they using? And what kind of things am I either um, more responsive to or, or less responsive to? Now, ironically, in all of this, um, Daniel Kahneman himself, who in many ways is kind of the father of, of, of this branch of, of social psychology, because he's researched um, heuristics um, and, and how that works, He's doing ads in, in the U.S. right now, and he's doing ads for a, I think it's a life insurance company. And, you know, it's about planning for the future. And as you'd expect from, you know, a, a Harvard psychologist um, and, and professor who's top of his field, the ads are very persuasive. <laughs> the ads are very persuasive. So, and you can actually look at his ads and kind of go, okay, well, you know, why is this working? And, you know, what, what about it? Um, you know, do I find it feeling or not? And I'll tell you, the ads are not, he doesn't go out there and say buy life insurance. He, he just talks through how we as humans think about the future and how we make uh, financial planning decisions. And then, you know, the, the logo of the life insurance company pops up. So I think you can certainly start by just looking at all of the messages that are that are thrown at us on a daily basis. You could also look at social interactions to see who's in, who's influencing whom, um, how and why. What are some of the the favorite techniques? Um, and looking across ages as well, age groups as well. Um, children have one particular way of, of influencing one another. Um, as you'd expect, relatively simplistic, but quite powerful. Um, and adults tend to be a lot more subtle um, in the, how they attempt to influence. So I would say that that's definitely a good, a good starting point. Well, this leads us to your perfect thinker thought experiment. Right. right. Would you like me to talk through that one? Yes. Okay. In looking at metacognition and, and outlining the different ways that a person could be a better um, critical thinker, I, I started. I started with this with this question. I started thinking, what's really the ideal? Um, you know, if you've gotten there in a perfect world under perfect conditions, 
what would that look like? And then we can sort of reverse engineer what would it take to get there? So I said, okay, so let's say that there's a challenge um, and there's, a, there's an answer, a very concrete, specific answer to a non-specialist problem. And there's, there's someone out there, a person um, who I call the perfect thinker. Now, this person can, exposed to the right information for the right amount of time, this person can come up with the answer to any problem that, that doesn't require a specialist knowledge. And this person is perfectly critical, has perfect metacognition, um, is perfectly able to absorb data and information. So if we were to take that person, who probably does not exist on the planet, but again, this is a thought experiment. Um, if we were to take the perfect thinker and put them in a room with 1,000 people, and these 1,000 people represent 1,000 different viewpoints on a particular topic, um, and they represent all the possible viewpoints on a particular topic. Um, but within that, some of them are more accurate than others. Some of them are biased. Some of them are neutral. Some of them have experience on the topic. Some of them don't. They merely represent every possible position that could be taken. Now, we put the perfect thinker in a room with those people, and we give the perfect thinker a, a problem to solve that has a specific answer. Um, it's in the, you know, it's in the present, and it doesn't require specialist knowledge. And we tell them, you have, as long as you want in this room, you can interview however many people you want for as long as possible, but we just need a good answer from you by the end. When they come out of the room, what would we expect? Um, if they're really a, a perfect thinker, we'd expect them to have the right answer. Now, if we, if we take that as a given, then the question becomes, what do the characteristics of the people in the room need to be? Um, does it matter that some of the people in there are wrong? I would say no. It doesn't matter that some of them are wrong because someone who's perfectly critical will be able to tell the people who are right from the people that are wrong. Um, does it matter that some of the people are politically motivated or that some of the people are more charismatic or have larger voices or perhaps are more famous or have, you know, miniature following, a uh, miniature following of their own? Again, I would say no, it doesn't matter. Um, I would even go so far as to say if, if one person of the thousand had all of the information, all of the information needed to solve, to solve the problem, and 999 people were completely wrong, but had no idea they were wrong, the perfect thinker would spend the most time with the one right person and get to the right answer. That's what we would expect. Um, now, the question is, you know, why is that? How, is, how, how could it be that somebody would not be swayed by 999 wrong voices? Well, to start with, um, I think that they are probably just someone who's, who's quite intelligent. I mean, depending on the nature of the challenge, IQ and, and, and raw intelligence is going to be very important. So that's number one. Number two, they're going to be quite good at understanding data and data quality. Now, for data quality, they're going to need to understand what basically what's what's good and what's bad. Um, in terms of the amount of data, really they're probably going for the minimum necessary to get the accurate assessment. So if one person has all the answers and you know there are two or three other people who have the same answers, you don't need to talk to three people. You need to talk to the one person with all the answers. Once that's done and you, and you know that that's done, you don't need to keep talking to other people. So they're quite good at understanding when they've reached a sufficient level of information and also when the data quality and the data source has been correct. 
Um, and then apart from that, um, they're probably not going to be influenced or swayed by anyone who is inaccurate, regardless of how charismatically inaccurate they are. Again, these are these are perfect conditions. So that was a, a, a way for me to start teasing out what does someone who's quite good at critical thinking actually look like in practice. And I think one of the things that that, that um, throws up is that the amount of information thrown at this person doesn't matter. Um, the, fact, the fact that there are 999 wrong people in the room doesn't matter. It could be a million people. Now, that might affect how much time they spend in the room or, you know, how much time they spend interviewing people, etc. But the sheer volume of information is irrelevant. Um, the accuracy of, of um, let's say, the average level of accuracy of the information is irrelevant. Um, what's relevant is whether the right information is actually there. Um, and, and whether the, the perfect thinker has, has a chance to actually meet this person. All right. Well, thought experiments are fun. There's no denying that. Right. So then we start to, the logical extension of this is what are the, what are the characteristics of, of, of the perfect thinker? Um, now, on the blog, I, I go into really kind of a laundry list, but it breaks down into to several buckets. Um, number one, they, they're really they're looking for the truth. Um, they're not looking for opinions um, or um, people's thoughts. Uh, they're really looking for what actually what the facts are, what the information is. So what somebody thinks versus what's actually the truth, um, that's kind of going to be a really big difference for them. Um, second of all, it's probably somebody, someone who is, um, prior to them walking into the room, they've probably gotten to be a perfect thinker by, by constantly looking for feedback. Um, the only way to know that you're wrong is to find out that you're wrong. <laughs> it's really the only way. Um, so, you know, you can, you can go to the blackjack table and you will quickly learn whether you have a good grasp of, of probability. Um, and if you learn counting cards, you will quickly learn uh, how good you are at it. If you actually go to, to, um, again, to black, to play blackjack, because the feedback is so rich in that environment, right? You lose money and, and you feel it. Um, but few of us actually have those kinds of opportunities. So someone who's a really good critical thinker and the, and the, the perfect thinker would have undertaken a lot of these exercises before to really understand how their previous decisions have worked out and how well their critical thinking is at the time. The other thing that they're likely to do is while they're in the room, they're likely to be checking their ongoing assessments as they go along. They're checking it against new information. They're checking it against what they've heard before. They're checking it against what they've known from before. They're constantly assessing what the validity is and they're not afraid to change it the second that, um, that they need to. That's another aspect. Um, the next I would say is, again, I touched a bit on, on data, um, data quality, data sources, especially in the age of the internet, I cannot stress enough how important that is. I mean, one of the things that's great is the internet really gives us what, what we want or what it thinks that we want. So, you know, there's a blog and a news site for every perspective out there. Um, and that doesn't make it right or accurate. It just doesn't. So, 
as as someone who who wants to be quite good at critical thinking, it's it's very important that um, we're careful about what sources where we're relying on for information and why we're relying on those sources. Is the New York Times better than the Wall Street Journal? Um, is Harvard.edu better than MIT.edu? It's really going to depend on the on the situation. Um, and then there are a number of other, I guess, disposition level areas where a perfect thinker um, is is where they're more a perfect thinker is more likely to to have these characteristics. One is neutrality, and that goes to the objectivity that I spoke of earlier. I think if you really want to be uh, truth seeking and perfectly um, critical, you really have to be neutral. So that means not being politically aligned, at least, you know, if you're making some sort of political assessment, um, not being really strongly religiously aligned, not being strongly sort of identity politics aligned, um, really being free of that. Um, and alongside that, it's free from the ego. <laughs> like, there are a number of us who will, will go and make uh, questionable assessments or terrible decisions simply because we just do not like the feeling of being wrong. Um, someone who's really good at, at metacognition is not going to be afraid of that because they're going to be wrong all the time. And being wrong all the time is the only way to be right most of the time, really. Um, and if you're not wrong a lot, then you're probably not pushing yourself intellectually enough into, into fields um, that are new enough for you. So that's that's one thing I would say. Um, and then the last is really just pure self-awareness, um, you know, knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. Perfect thinker wouldn't offer an answer where there is none. Um, it wouldn't claim to be an expert on the topic where they really knew very little about. Um, they're going to be very aware of, you know, how much they know and what they know, where they got it. Um, and they're not going to overstep that, you know, and, and kind of make a, a bad decision or a bad assessment from just not realizing where they fit in the, you know, in the knowledge. And this is obviously very applicable to business, among other things, but business in particular, since you have to synthesize so many different fields if you are a CEO, manage uh -huh. many competing input streams from R&D, from marketing, from accounting. Okay, you said from R&D, from marketing, and then I didn't hear anything else. Accounting. <laughs> <laughs> Even the computer yeah. is bored by it. Okay. Uh, yes. Critical thinking in, in business is really important, really important. And, you know, by and large, I would say um, most business executives are quite good at it. I, I think you have to be to be senior in any successful business, whether it's a startup or whether it's a, it's a big corporate. That said, there are a number of areas where I see uh, people and highly intelligent people consistently making mistakes um, or consistently having weak spots. Uh, the first area I would say is not realizing that they're making implicit assumptions. So an implicit versus um, an explicit assumption is, um, sorry, 
there are implicit and there are explicit assumptions. An explicit assumption is something that you've named and identified. So you might assume that the weather is going to be quite good tomorrow, and so therefore you're going to go to the park and have a picnic. That's an explicit assumption. An implicit assumption would be you know, the equivalent of just walking out the house the next day without an umbrella and with you know, shorts and a T-shirt. There's an implicit assumption there um, that the weather is going to be good. Now, the danger with implicit assumptions is that you then can't um, review them and evaluate them to, to understand whether they actually make sense. And you certainly don't pick up on whether they've changed. So, um, you know, one that kind of often comes up in, in business, quite frankly, is um, let's say, you know, there might be a, um, a, a, a strategy that a competitor is following. And there's kind of an implicit assumption that that's going to be the strategy that they're going to continue to follow. So perhaps you, you know, do your own strategy that, you know, you think kind of, you know, fits nicely with that, et cetera, and you build the factory and you release the product. And, oh, gosh, wait a minute, they've, they've actually gone and they've done something totally different and now they're competing in your market or, or whatever it might be. Um, making implicit assumptions can be very dangerous in business, and, and that's one where I, I see it a lot. Um, the other is overconfidence. Um, unfortunately, many corporates function similar to an echo chamber in that if one person says something, the second person will quote it, the third person will quote that person, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, etc. And then, you know, by the time it gets to the CEO, it gets reported as, well, you know, this number has appeared, you know, 15 different times. Well, okay, it may have, but it was really kind of all down to one person, and, and we don't know how well that they, um, uh, you know, how rigorous they were in their analysis to come up with the number. So then, you know, at that point, the CEO might say, okay, well, this is great. So many people like it. Okay, great. We're going to go forward with this. Um, and we've already started, and, you know, we have a bit of experience in this area, so so we're bound to do well. That's effectively overconfidence. Um, you know, that you haven't really evaluated how good the data is, how good the data quality is. Um, you haven't gone back to talk to the to the original people who gave the original data and information to see um, what they thought of it and how they came to their analysis, and more importantly, sometimes whether anything has changed. Um, and so, you know, you might be going on a, on a false premise that everything is okay and that you're more than capable to take it on but you're not understanding where you're weak. Um, and those are things that can be um, um, quite, quite dangerous um, later on. Um, you know, to give, to give an example from the famous Cola Wars, um, the uh, Coca-Cola released New Coke in, gosh, it was in the 80s at, at some point. And they spent millions of dollars on the new branding, the new launch, and on focus groups. So they did talk to people and they asked people, you know, do you like the new formulation? And people said yes. And great. So they went and they spent a bunch of money, rebranded New Coke, and it caused such a ruckus. Um, and it really took them by surprise. Um, I mean, there were even protest groups and they didn't have Facebook at the time, but it definitely would have been Facebook groups devoted to bring back New Coke. I mean, there, there were people, you know, sort of picketing outside the, the headquarters. It was, it was insane considering it was a, a soft drink. But what Coke didn't really quite realize in all of this is that they weren't asking the right questions of the right people. 
Um, so focus groups can be a bit misleading because you're only getting a little bit of data on, on whether, you know, somebody likes something. And sometimes researchers can feel a bit under pressure to give the answer that they know needs to be given. So, you know, if you ask consumers, do you like the taste of this? They're more likely to say, yes, I do. Um, then if you ask consumers, how do you feel about the taste of this versus that? Right. Um, so there are little subtle things that can kind of be massaged to give you the answer that you want. Um, and long story short, Coke ended up bringing back the original formula. Um, they originally released it as Coke Classic and they brought it back and then now it's just, it's just regular Coke again. Um, but it can happen to the best of executives. Uh, and you can actually read all about that on their website. I don't know. Uh, so that's one thing that I, I really see happening a lot at, um, within business. Um, and then, and then the last part, which kind of goes to the, to the bias part, um, there's sometimes an unfortunate trend to allow the people with the strongest personalities to have the greatest influence and, and the greatest say. Um, and, you know, it's sometimes down to charisma. Sometimes, it actually, it's, it's even just a matter of, of seniority. Um, but I think you'll find that extroverts get an undue amount of influence over some of these decisions particularly if they're made in a brainstorming meeting or any kind of a, um, a meeting, sort of group level meeting, um, where there's several people um, sitting around a table. Um, and the reason is that they tend to seem a lot more confident in what they believe because they're often the loudest there. <laughs> 